Okay, I think we're ready to go. That was the opening music to Shane, released in 1953 by Paramount, and it stars Alan Ladd, Gene Arthur Van Heflin, and Brandon DeWilde, as well as uh, Jack Palance's first screen appearance, and it's a good one. Is it ever? And it was directed by George Stevens, based on a novel by Jack Shearer. And uh, you, you probably have some more stats about it, but uh, before we get to that, I'd just like to say welcome to Classic Movie Reviews. And uh, you can find us on the internet at www.classicmoviereviews.net or in iTunes or Facebook. Just search for Classic Movie Reviews and you'll find us on there. And if you feel up to it, give us a star rating and leave a comment. We love getting those. And uh, I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm recording from Seattle today. And I'm Bob Johnson, recording from Los Angeles, welcoming you all back to Classic Movie Reviews and to our review of Shane, which is a wonderful movie that I saw with my cousin in Duluth, Minnesota in the summer of 1953. Um... There's a lot of lot of different information that I pulled together. Uh, the director George Stevens had a long and productive career doing over 50 movies from 1930 through 1970, and just a few of those that uh, our listeners will recognize: A Place in the Sun from 1951, Giant from 1956, and uh, The Diary of Anne Frank from 1959. And uh, Mr. Stevens won an Academy Award in uh, 19, for, for, the, for the 1951 film, A Place in the Sun. And I believe he also won an Academy Award for Giant. Then we've got uh, our, our leads in the show. Uh, Alan Ladd, uh, who made some wonderful movies from in the 1940s, this Gun for Hire, 1942, and the Blue Dahlia, which is a favorite of mine from 1946. And Gene Arthur, who was uh, in film from 1923 to 1953. This was Ms. Arthur's uh, final film. Uh, and she uh, did, like, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939 and uh, played Calamity Jane in The Plainsman in 1936, I believe, with Gary Cooper. This movie was very successful at the box office. Uh, the, the budget was about $3 million and it did over $20 million in the box office originally. So in today's world, that would be a mega hit for sure. Well, it was funny. When I was reading about the movie, they, Paramount was worried that they weren't going to make their money back. And they started to shop it around and they shopped it around to Howard Hughes who turned it down until he saw the first rough cut. And then he's like, oh, actually, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take it from you. And then Paramount changed their mind and decided to go with it, which was a good decision. 
Well, I bet they were glad they didn't uh, offload it to uh, RKO. Yeah. And uh, Howard Hughes. Um, just a, kind of a, a lead in. In the previews to Shane, my friend that I visit every Friday, retired actor, has a copy of one of the previews that was first made of the movie, for the movie. And in the background, you can see either a bus or a truck going down the highway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, they, when they saw that, they thought, oh, wait, perhaps we should re, re-edit that. So, so the previews that went out uh, didn't have that in it. But once you see that vehicle go by, it's in the distance, but that's all you can see because it's <laughs> so out of place with the theme of the film. Uh, one of those bloopers. Yeah, the, when, when, when Shane is riding down into the valley, that, that is definitely the view that you get when you're going from Victor, Idaho, into Jackson, uh, Wyoming. There's this pass that you go over, and there's one part where it, it looks exactly like that. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, I know exactly where that's at. <laughs> isn't, the, isn't the scenery and photography amazing? The cinematographer, Laurel Griggs, did a marvelous job on that. In fact, the whole film is is a masterpiece in my mind. Yeah, I was uh, surprised at how much of the movie happens at night, especially near the end of the movie. And it really gets atmospheric and spooky looking when they're riding out on the, you know, through the valley floor with the moon shining on the mountains in the background. And yes, yeah, that was cool. I think yesterday I sent you a note saying, wouldn't this be something if it had been shot in the current IMAX format? I know. I was. I didn't realize it was shot in, I guess, what's called the Academy format, the 1.33 by 1 aspect ratio. And um, I kept, when I started watching, I'm like, oh, did I, did I get the wrong version? Is there like a widescreen version of this? And so I started digging around and realizing that it was shot in that format. And then they had sent out instructions to the projectionists to project it cropped into more of a widescreen format because they were trying to compete with CinemaScope, which I think is sort of like taking a widescreen movie and doing like a pan and scan on like a four by three aspect ratio on TV. It's, it's not, it's not going to be the same movie. I, I, I can't imagine cropping any of the frame to try to make it look like it was a wider format that seems super weird to me and you know the best way to watch it is the way that it was shot and i don't think that the, that they should mess around with it like they had done when they projected it i suppose and you know i don't think i've ever seen it yet, other than the uh, original uh, format i think at the, it was 1952 53 54 that was the era when 20th century fox was really promoting uh, CinemaScope, and the other studios were scrambling to come up with theirs, like there was VistaVision that came out from one of the studios and others. But this may have been made before they were able to get that into better use, so that's maybe why they did that. But um, no matter how I see it, whenever it's on, I try to watch it, because uh, if nothing else, the beauty of the photography makes it a winner. And then you get the story, and it's marvelous. For sure. And and the the mountains serve more, of, uh, serve more purpose than just being pretty backdrop. I think it gives you a feeling of like, like they're hemmed in. Like, 
I, I just got the feeling like they're they're totally on their own, and there were some lines in the movie about how the nearest uh, sheriff was a hundred miles away. Mm-hmm. Break is back. This is bad. This is bad. I'm going in there. No, you're not, Stonewall. You're going to stay right here. This ain't our fight. If we get mixed up in it, we'll all get run out of this country. Go on. Go get them, Fred. That's the trouble with this country. There ain't a marshal within a hundred-mile ride. They they basically were on their own, and they had to deal with uh, what was going on their own way. And I, I felt like the landscape helped to reinforce that feeling. It really did. Can imagine what that would be like in the winter? Ooh, <laughs> yeah. It's like in those houses. And I loved all the characters that were the homesteaders. Everybody from uh, Edgar Buchanan to uh, the Swede. Douglas Spencer played Alex Swede Shipstead. Yeah, when I, thought, when I saw him, I was like, oh, he's from The Thing. And then he was also in another movie that we've reviewed. He was, and he reminded me of two-thirds of my relatives in Minnesota. You betcha. We got that, we got that covered there. Well, they were really, really diligent about giving everything a very authentic look. So all the clothes were very authentic and were made to be exactly like they would have been at that time. And then the houses, like the cabins and the, the barns and stuff were all built to spec exactly like they would have been built. And when I was, when they were inside the cabin, I, I could almost smell like the, the wood and the, the smoke. And it was like, I, man, I just felt like I was there. It was so visceral in, in the way that it looked. And, and you could tell that either at first I thought, well, maybe they just found like, like these old, buildings and they repurposed them but no they i mean they actually built all that and that town too they built the town which is probably why it got to be so expensive well and the way that's done and again and uh, back to a bad day at black rock where they built that town out in the middle of uh the lone pine area it looks like it's been there forever it's just so well done and, and this one is the same way I, I just was uh, looking at a, a review by uh, Bosley Crother, I believe at the time he was at the New York Times. He said, this is a rich, dramatic, mobile painting of the American frontier scene. No kidding. Mobile mobile painting? Mobile painting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a mobile painting, yeah. Well, I've been, I've been to the um, National Park there many times and, and driven through there a lot of times and... I kept thinking that it's so different now than it was then. In some ways, it's so different and and civilized now. You know, like that's they filmed it inside the national park, um, but in other ways, it looks exactly the same, right? Like <laughs> it does, yeah. Especially the mud. Yeah. When, when old when old uh, evil Jack Palance as Jack Wilson does his first shooting of uh, Stonewall Tory. Uh, and he falls in the mud. I'm saying, oh man, that we used to call that in Montana gumbo, because you get it on and you can't get it off. It gets higher and higher. You can get like three, four inches of this gumbo on your shoes. Oh, I ruined a pair of shoes just 
a few years ago, I got out of the car and was walking around, and the shoes were gone. By the time I got back in the car, they were ruined. Oh, no. Um, well, uh, speaking of the gunfire, that I think that was the first gunshot in the movie when uh, Jack Plants' character, uh, Jack Wilson, shoots Stonewall Tory, and and they uh, the director wanted that to be really really impactful, so he had them shoot a cannon into a barrel and recorded the sound of that, and that's the sound that they use for the gunfire. You're a low-down line Yankee. Prove it. No, Tori. Oh, I didn't know that. Two-thirds of the crew were deaf for the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah. Holy smoke. But, yeah, I mean, that was a that was a great I, – I love yeah. the fact that, you know, your typical Western leading up to this movie and, and, you know, like the TV shows and stuff, there's a lot of gunfire and, and you know, a lot of movies start right off with, like, a gun battle. And this one they made a point of saying that there had been a new law passed about uh, the use of the guns and, and – that they, you know, weren't going to take guns into town. Like the homesteaders weren't going to take guns into town. And then this, this, this guy dressed in black, you know, Jack Wilson rides into town, and you can tell he's sort of like he just doesn't. He's just not a part of that. He's not. He's going to do what he wants. Yeah, isn't he? You know, he's something with those. He's got uh, two guns strapped to, his, to himself, and they're backward. He's got. Yeah. Them, yeah. See the other way. Well, there's an interesting scene when uh, Shane is teaching Joey to shoot guns, and Joey's really interested in how different gunfighters wear their guns. Like, you know, yes. and Shane goes through like, well, some some gunfighters wear it like on their hip, on their holster. Some gunfighters wear it in their belt. Well, we got some learning to do, huh? Come on, you stand right here. All right, now put your arms on your side. Mm-mm. Your holster's too low. Never have your holster at arm's length. Here, let's fix this. You always have it here, where the grip is between the elbow and the wrist. So when your hand comes up, the gun will clear the holster without coming up too high. You see? Right, now you try it. Real fast. Straight. Oh, that's it. That's it. Gosh, is that the way real gunfighters do? No, Joy. Most of them have tricks of their own. One, for instance, likes to have a shoulder holster. Another one puts it in his, uh, the belt of his pants. And there are some who like two guns. The one's all you need if you can use it. And I just thought there's like this, you know, this whole mystique and culture around around that. Uh, even, uh, well, I mean, it's a movie, so, you know, I don't know how it relates back to to what it was really like at that time but i i i like that they kind of played off of that mystique of of the gunfighter you know speaking of how they made the the sound so loud in the magnificent 7 they uh the director had uh, directed that some thing be done so the gunfire was even more dramatic than it would otherwise have been i don't know how they did that but it brings back that memory it's very clear when they're firing those rifles and, and handguns, how wildly loud that is. 
So our movie uh, has a pretty, pretty traditional plot in a lot of ways, yet there's a lot of subtext to it, a lot of different story feel to it. Uh, I, I did a little research, and some of it is kind of reminiscent of what was called the Johnson County Wars in Wyoming that took place in the 18, late 1800s between cattle ranchers and homesteaders. And I guess it got to be really, really bad. And there have been other movies about that. And this kind of has that flavor. It's not the... Uh, you know, it's never really clear to me, the Grafton gang... Are they cattle ranchers, or what do they do other than cause yeah, the they, Well, yeah, they're, they're cattle ranchers. They want to have the the valley opened up to them. They don't want to have the fences. Okay. They don't want to have the land, like, divided out. And there's that really, I, I thought, probably one of the best scenes in the movie when the leader of that gang, um, Sam Grafton, played by Paul McVeigh, is is kind of like kind of like trying to convince Joe Starrett that they were there first and they're the ones who tamed the land and and they've done the work and they should get the the rewards of that and then you know these homesteaders come in and just you know don't have to worry about the natives they don't have to worry about the 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 dangerous animals because they've all been taken care of and how do you start Evening, man. I had something I wanted to talk over with you, Stark. Whatever business you and I got, we can talk over right here. I'll just lay it on the barrel head, then. How would you like to work for me? I'm working for myself. Got enough working for others. Well, I tell you. I'll pay you top wages. More than you can make on this patch of ground. No, I'm not interested. I haven't set it off. You can run your cattle with mine. What's more, I'll buy your homestead. Set a price you think is reasonable. You'll find me reasonable. Is that fair? You've made things pretty hard for us, Riker. And us in the right all the time. Right! You in the right! Look, Stark. When I come to this country, you weren't much older than your boy there. We had rough times. Me and other men that are mostly dead now. I got a bad shoulder yet from a Cheyenne arrowhead. We made this country. Founded and we made it. Worked blood and empty bellies. Cattle we brought in were hazed off by Indians and rustlers. Don't bother you much anymore because we handled them. We made a safe range out of this. Some of us died doing it. We made it. And then people move in who never had a raw hide through the old days. They fence off my range and fence me off from water. Some of them, like you, plow ditches and take out irrigation water. And so the creek runs dry sometimes. I've got to move my stock because of it. And you say we have no right to the range. The men that did the work and ran the risks have no rights. And Joey, or Joe Starrett has a great comeback, which says, well, you, you make it sound like because you have rights that nobody else can have rights, too. It's like, 
That's a great line, yeah. And I, I just thought that that right there was so unique for a movie about this topic because it made you realize, like, they don't see themselves as bad guys. Like, the Graftons don't see themselves as bad guys. They see themselves as, like, defending their rights and their land and their history. And then you look at, like, the homesteaders and they're trying to do the same thing. So that, to me, really pushed this movie into a whole different realm of, of message and quality and story. Oh, it, it, they're, they're, that's so true. And the uh, Grafton crew also kind of shows how they view power when they come out to the Stark uh, homestead and they ride right through the garden. This, this, they just rip up uh, uh, Marion's garden. And they have a total disregard for, for any of that. Uh, and that kind of reinforced just how they view what their role should be is to protect their own domain. Another subtext that I, I, I really like in the movie is the, is the tension between Van Heflin's character and Alan Ladd, but then they become like buddies in that big fight scene in the bar. I love it when Van Heflin grabs that uh, axe handle and goes through the door and just wails away on a couple yeah. of them. <laughs> How did anybody walk out of that fight? Like, they all should have had really bad concussions and or have been dead. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But at the end of it, it was like one of those lethal weapon uh, end of the fight kind of things. Where well, there's, there's, two, there's two, like, moments in the film where it's like it, it's like a buddy film. Like, exactly yes. like a lethal weapon. There's one when they're chopping the... the stump and they're and they're working on it together and they they look at each other and it's like they're like best friends you know and and there's nothing else they'd rather be doing than chopping this this stump out of the ground and then the other one that you just described in the bar fight where they look at each other they're like and we're having some fun aren't we (laughs) (laughs) what was it six to two or something like that I mean, Did, Shane gets a, a chair to the back of the head. Like, how do you, like, get up after that? <laughs> the thing that I thought about during that fight scene, though, was it was kind of goofy. Like, exact. I mean, it was, like, it wasn't really that realistic in, in terms of, yeah, people would not get up if they got hit on the head with a, a axe handle, right? Like, um, but, it was, but, but it was fun. It, it was fun. And then it actually made what happens later in the movie more powerful. Like when they, when they have the gunfight, when Shane comes into that same bar and has that gunfight, it made it so much more powerful. They didn't overdo that fight scene and make it too serious. It was kind of like a fun sort of like buddy picture scene, you know? I was reminded when I watched that of a lot of the John Wayne Westerns. There's some, at some point in a John Wayne Western, oftentimes there'll be, a big fight like that. Chairs are broken. People are beaten up. There's one a movie called McClintock, and they all end up in this lime pit, including uh, Maureen O'Hare. She falls down, and, and nobody's really seriously hurt in these things. I'm like, my goodness. How can they do that? <laughs> which, yeah, which I think it was very intentional in, in this movie. Uh, I, I have to say that the direction 
was just incredible. Uh, and the little attention to detail. And one of the things I read was what's not said is just as important as what is said in the film. So you, 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 you start to understand that Shane and Marion have some kind of a connection. Like there's some kind of, yeah. some kind of like sexual tension there or some kind of like uh, romantic tension Nobody ever says anything about it, and it never, like, crosses a line where you're like, well, Shane is a real asshole for, like, getting, you know, with Marion or something like that. And there's even a scene when Joe kind of realizes that Shane and Marion, like, have some kind of a connection, and he doesn't make a huge deal out of it, and it never really goes anywhere, but it... Mary, they fenced me out here. It, it's there the whole time, and you kind of feel it, and it, it adds to the overall uh, effect of the movie, I think. It does. It really brings home the, the point that, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a lot of dialogue for that to take place. Just looking at them and the way they're photographed, you can see that there is something there. Um, and was it, was it uh, the little boy something? It was just like Joey. It was brand Joey, new. Yeah. He just he was he was mesmerized by Shane, and he had that little wooden handgun that he toted around. And he and his little twenty-two rifle. I I thought of you when he when you told me yeah. that story about you're riding your bike around Lewistown and you had this rifle, and I thought it's probably a rifle like that little kid had. It, it, it was. It was a single shot. 22. You're not going to kill somebody with that, but you're, you could sure hurt somebody with it, though. Not exactly what you'd want your kids to be driving around, riding around North Bend carrying it. No, no. I mean, like, I get nervous when they run around with their airsoft guns that have the big orange <laughs> tip on the end of them. Like. Another subtext, I thought, just kind of keeping in that vein for a minute, Ben Johnson's character, Chris Calloway, does a complete change about his view of the Grafton's and that they've crossed that line, and he comes out uh, to to the Starrett Ranch and talks to Shane, and he get he he leaves. He doesn't want any part of this Grafton approach to running the homesteaders off. Who is it? Calloway. Chris Calloway. Stay where you are. I can tell you. Hold it, Shane. Something to tell you. What do you want? Starrett's up against a stacked deck. Why are you telling me? I don't know. I reckon something's come over me. I don't figure. I'm quitting Riker. Hello. Chris. Thanks. Be seeing you. Yeah, I like that scene too. I th- I was surprised by that. I did not expect that to happen because yes. he was the first one who beat the crap out of Shane when. Uh, yeah, I think it was. I think he was making fun of him for buying a soda pop and like threw bourbon on his brand new shirt when he was when Shane was shopping the first time. I, I believe that was, was that the, the beginning of the fight where when Shane hits him, his hat goes flying out the door? His cowboy, Ben Johnson. <laughs> yeah, I, think so. I, love, I love that detail. They must have had it on a string or a wire or something because it just flew off. Yeah, that was the, well, that was the fight where um, they didn't get in a fight the first time Shane went into town. It was the second time they went back. 
Oh, that's right. And then they got into the big fight where uh, Joe got involved with it too, but yeah. The first fight, Shane backed away from, didn't want to get into that. And then later that day or the next day, there's all the homesteaders are getting together in that rain. Oh, yeah. God, can you imagine? They kind of uh, talk about how he wasn't able to, you know, defend himself. And he gets up and kind of leaves because he thinks, I think he says something like, you'll be free to talk more. You'll be more free to talk without me here. Can't count on him. He's proved that much. You watch what you're saying. Maybe Shane can tell you what happened between him and this Chris Calloway and Mr. Riker. They're talking about Shane. What is this, Shane? Let him say Lewis seen it and heard it. He let this Chris Buffalo in Grafton Saloon. Fredden, I told Shane to stay away from trouble now. If he did, he did right. Let's finish the story, Joey. He, he didn't. Right. Shane didn't let him do that. This Chris went around afterwards bragging how he put the run on a shot buster. Shane, you don't have to leave. I figured you could talk for you if I want to run. Yeah, I was, I was curious what you thought about how he was sort of non-violent at the beginning of the movie, but by the end of the movie, he was like a killer. But yeah, It reminded me of some of the Clint Eastwood films. Yeah, I read that Pale Rider was kind of a, a homage to Shane. Oh, okay. Hi, this is Matt Johnson, and Bob and I ended up talking for almost an hour about this movie, so we're going to break this episode into a part one and a part two and we've got shane part two coming up next and then after that we're going to be watching a creature feature double feature of them exclamation point and it came from outer space so stay tuned for shane part two and then get ready for some 1950s monster sci-fi movies thanks a lot everybody